Hey everyone, uh, this episode is being recorded in the shadow of uh, some pretty horrific events happening to Israel, which is where I'm from. Uh, Jonathan and I talked about it, uh, and we decided to try and do a no episode uh, as normal. This is not a politics show, this is not a news show. Well, it's news about Go, but not news news. But please take into consideration that that's the situation that uh, myself and uh, people uh, near me are experiencing right now. We hope it won't affect the episode too much. Uh, also, this show is sponsored by Koyab.com, a developer-friendly serverless platform to deploy apps globally. Stick around until the ad break to hear more about Koyab. This is Kappa Go for Friday the 13th, October 2023. Keep up to date with the important and spooky happenings in the Go community in 15 minutes per week. I'm Shai Nechman. And I'm Jonathan Hall. What releases do we have? Anything spooky? We do have something spooky. Uh, there's a big security uh, release that came out uh, this last week. Go 1.21.3 and 1.20.10 have been released. And this includes a release for Net HTTP that solves a rapid stream reset that can cause excessive work. So potential DOS type of problem. So be sure to upgrade quickly if you haven't already. And if you have HTTP servers, which is probably everyone, right? <laughs> Just about everyone. <laughs> Other than that release, we don't have any major uh, like releases known or planned. But we are getting near uh, 22, right? Should be like in January-ish? Should come out in f probably February. I'm rooting for Valentine's Day. I don't know what day of the week that is. So, um, so it's coming up. We're halfway there. So if yeah. you had a thing you really wanted to put into 1.22... Then now's the time to talk about it, but not if that thing is zero, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> what happened with that proposal? You may recall we talked a few weeks ago about the proposal to add an untyped zero, sort of the cousin of nil that you could use in various places to do equality checks. You had to check if a struct is zero or to do like return zero comma zero comma zero comma error instead of return whatever you might have to do to get zero types for your structs and whatnot. Important to note, since this is an audio format, that the keyword is actually Z-E-R-O. It's not like the number zero, right? Right. right. It's yep. a new keyword in the language that's zero spelled out. Correct. And Correct. it's, wait, but isn't that nil? Yeah, so the original version of the proposal was that it would kind of duplicate nil. It would be valid for all types. They retracted that and, and changed it to be only for types that where nil isn't applicable. But now it's been, and it, and it was accepted. We, we were expecting this and go 1.22. It has since been retracted. I didn't know that was even an option. Like <laughs> I didn't either. Like once something was accepted, it can get unaccepted. Yes. Well, I honestly, I think that's kind of nice to see happen. I've heard some people express the idea that the Go team sort of railroads their ideas through. And some, I've heard people say that about particular proposals. We know this is going to be accepted because it comes from the Go team. I think this shows that that's not always true. You know, the Go team has some humility. Russ Cox has said, quote, this discussion has made clear that we're not ready for this change, retracting the proposal. So even after it was accepted, people kept talking about it and bringing up some concerns. One of the concerns I thought was interesting was that if you add this keyword, it becomes possible to do equality checks against all structs, even those that otherwise are not possible, sometimes intentionally. And, and the, the, the person who made the point pointed out that you'll sometimes see a struct that has like uh, an empty array in it specifically to prevent equality checks. So this would circumvent that, that author's intention to circumvent equality checks. And there were other topics brought up too. TLDR, it's been retracted at least for now. Maybe something else will come along later. But if you were really looking forward to 1.22.0's zero support, it won't be there. Well, I think that it's not a feature as much as it's syntactic sugar. So you, we could just wait until you know we figure out all the kinks and whatever and manage to implement it. And even if we never implement it, it's not the end of the world. It's not super important. I would agree with that, yes. But, but it is really good move uh, from a Go team side to be able to retract it. We will get back to proposals. Uh, we do want to do conferences and meetups real quick. So I want to shout out a specific uh, conference or a meetup, sorry. Uh, Go Israel meetup, which is, um, you know, the main uh, meetup that I'm uh, participating in. I recently lectured there and our first interviewee, Miki, is the organizer, uh, are coming to uh, my workplace 
Orca Security. So I recently joined Orca Security and started setting up Go Advocacy there. And the first thing we did was set up a meetup. We have a really cool lecture coming up. If you're in Israel and you write Go, you should come. Right now it's scheduled for November 7th. Uh, obviously because of the war, uh, this might move. Um, so make sure you subscribe to updates. But it will move, but it'll happen. <laughs> so come join us at Orca. You can meet me and get some swag. Awesome. Here in Amsterdam, we just did our meetup uh, last week in Utrecht. We usually do it in Amsterdam. We did it in Utrecht, which is about an hour away, for those who aren't familiar with the geography. Uh, it was a really great meetup, and uh, we're preparing to do our next one November 21. So if you're in the Amsterdam area, be sure to sign up for this, the meetup group in Amsterdam and uh, be notified about that when it's finally announced, too. Are you Dutch enough that when you say one hour away, it's public transport one hour away? <laughs> Good question. Uh, so in this case, it's one hour away from me, whether it's by car or public transport. It's like a five-minute difference in this particular case. You Europeans and your public transportation infrastructure. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, generally, I would say an hour away uh, to being by train. Damn you and your bikes yeah. and your trains. Yeah, I wouldn't ride my bike there. That would probably be about three hours or longer. Moving on. Public transportation and, and infrastructure jealousy aside. <laughs> so we have a, an interesting proposal. This isn't really about go but it's about the go ecosystem so there is a proposal that has been accepted basically kill the wiki site on github and move it into the go uh, website the main reason for this is to avoid spam uh, basically it's not possible github doesn't give the control to lock down wiki edits or to require approvals of them and, and so on so basically anybody is free to go in and change the wiki. Please don't do that unless you're making legitimate changes. But, you know, there's been some spamming happening. Uh, so what will be moved to the website, still possible to contribute to it. You'll just have to go through the pull request process to do that. Which I think is overall improvement, right? Yeah. The, the review benefits would be really good. And also, since I think two or three years ago, GitHub doesn't allow crawling wiki sites. So you wouldn't find that content on Google. So, you know, compared to like official documentation, website content, the, the wiki is just, it's bad uh, into when writing because it's like world writable. It doesn't have a review process mm -hmm. and it's bad reading because it's not very searchable. So it's just, it performs worth on both uh, both uh, sides of the equation. Exactly. So I think it's a really good move and I'm happy yeah. it's accepted. And it will affect a minority of people uh, negatively in the sense that it'll be harder for them to contribute. I will be one of those people. I tend to edit the conference's wiki page almost every week as I'm preparing for this show. And uh, that will be a more involved process, but still overall a net gain for the community. So I think if I know that in my previous company, we had a you know, very strict code review process. We were, had to fit to regulations and whatever. So like, you know, like most companies, but for documentation PRs, we just had, uh, you know, we allowed self-approval. We just checked in CI that there is no something like that. I'm sure that the Go team can rig up. Oh, if it changes to these pages, if it comes from trusted authors, you know, they can self-review uh, and they can self-approve uh, the pull request, something like that. If it just changes in the docs folder. Yeah. But we'll see. We'll see what they set up. So one interesting fallout effect from this is you may recall we talked in the past about the discussion or the, the proposal to stop to remove the bridge between GitHub and Garrett for pull requests. I think this likely will kill that <laughs> because for, for documentation updates, we want it to be as you know, relatively seamless or, or painless and GitHub pull requests are probably the easier way to do that. So as, as I understand, the proposal is to use GitHub to do pull requests for documentation, which probably means not getting rid of that GitHub to Garrett bridge that they talked about removing which is again another move from the go team to you know accept more community contributions even at the cost of maintaining more infrastructure so kudos kudos to them uh so last week adelina and yourself oh it's a good chance to shout out thanks adelina for covering for me while i was uh, recovering from covid your episode was really good uh second timer uh third timer actually if you count the the interview that's right. uh, so a huge part in making this show. Thanks a lot, Adelina. We appreciate your work and your book. Go buy Adelina's book now. <laughs> so uh, last week, you and Adelina discussed about another interesting proposal about encoding JSON. So what's going yeah. on there? I, so I subscribed to this uh, discussion on GitHub. And I have to say, I don't like the way GitHub handles subscriptions to, to, to discussions. Because within a discussion, you have all these little threads. And I'm only interested in some of them. 
but I get notifications for all of them. I've been getting hundreds of notifications. This is a very, very active thread. Uh, if you have any interest in JSON marshalling or how it should or shouldn't be done, I encourage you to go read the thread. Let me just highlight a couple of things that have been discussed. Um, one of the main things to be discussed is what should the defaults be? So let me give a, a really simple example. Uh, if you've done JSON encoding with the current in- implementation, you already know about omit empty. Uh, which uh, you put in your struct tag to say, if this field is empty, then just omit it from the JSON output, as opposed to producing null or an empty map or something like that. They're uh, proposing, planning to add an omit zero option also, which complements omit empty and would particularly be useful for for empty slices uh, and maps and stuff like that. So rather than having, say, empty curly braces, you could just delete, delete the field entirely. There's an open question. Well, what should the default be? Should the default be that you omit empty or that you include empty and you have to turn it off? So, you know, there's this question. There's many other questions about what should the defaults be? Like we know we need an option between A and B. Sometimes A is is the version one capability that that's maybe broken, but we still need to enable it for compatibility sake. Sometimes it's a completely new thing. What should the default be? So this has come up many, many times. What should the default behavior be for this thing, for that thing, for the other thing? So that's a really good one. And then, of course, people have been just bringing up proposals for, can we handle this thing or that thing? Um, one I like came from Josh Bleeker, who we've had on the show before. He uh, asked about union-typed JSON. So in other words, you have a field that is either a string or a slice. And right now, it's very cumbersome to do that. There are ways to do that with the current implementation. But could we add first-class citizen support to do this thing? And of course, then there's the question, okay, that's a great idea. We'd love to do that. But how do we do that? What would that API look like? So there's a long discussion about this. It has 22 or so, 27 replies. So there's a lot of little things that go into this discussion. It's an interesting discussion. Even if you just want to lurk and read, you're going to learn a lot about JSON and Go and how these things pan out. So I think it's good reading. Go check it out. I think that Math Rand V2 was the first proposal. That one pales in comparison in terms of, I think, impact. I mean, as Joe said on, on last week's interview, encoding JSON is apparently the fifth most imported library in, from the standard or package from the standard library. Behind things, obvious things like FMT and IO, you need everywhere. So, you know, it's, it's an incredibly popular package. So, of course, there's a lot of interest to get it right. I think there's, it's a good chance for self reflection as. The software developers, how did we end up with curly braces JSON as our international format for data (laughs) and not uh, better ones? You know, insert one of 17 standards here. Each one can, uh, you know, everyone can uh, vote for their favorite. If you're listening and you missed last week's interview with Joe, I encourage you to listen. Uh, Joe surprised me that he he thinks JSON is near perfect. Uh, That's not an opinion I hear very frequently. It's easy to complain, but it's uh, it's hard <laughs> to uh, to actually find better things. Yeah. Uh, so I'm gonna take the easy easy route and complain. Awesome. <laughs> One small release uh, we wanted to highlight this week is Viper. So you probably use the Viper Cobra stack somewhere for setting up uh, CLI applications and then setting up configuration. I really really like using Viper for environment variables and stuff like that. It's my go-to. And they just released with S-Log support. So that's great. It's a small breaking change, but it's a change that breaks in an experimental feature. So you'll probably not notice it. But if you want standard logging from Viper, now you can have it. They just get the interface, the standard library S-Log interface as, you know, you can pass it with Logger, uh, which is great. Uh, It's nice to see the dissemination of, you know, S-Log to the big libraries. I think it's a good move. Any big library in Go right now any that has logging should in the next few releases start supporting S-Log because, you know, it, it, it is taking a really good hold. It's good to see that the standard implementation is actually getting accepted. All right. Moving on from hard news, so to speak, uh, I found an interesting discussion on Reddit this, this last week that I thought was worth calling On Reddit? To. Yeah. Can you believe I was on Reddit this week? <laughs> I can believe you were there. I can't believe you found an interesting discussion. <laughs> so the, the question and the title of the, the discussion is, what problem did Go actually solve for Google? Now, we've, we probably all know that Google created Go, sponsored Go, and they still do sponsor Go, although they've sort of given it to the community by now, but they're still, you know, it's mostly run by Google. And we all hear that, you know, Rob Pike and, and others at Google were, were trying to solve problems. And, and the, the poster says that he's been watching Rob Pike's uh, interviews and, and YouTube videos where he uses the phrase Google's problem frequently. And so the asker is like, what was Google's problem? And I think that's a really nice question to ask, uh, something we often forget about, what, what problem was Go meant to solve? And of course, it wasn't a single problem per se, but uh, yeah, there's some great discussion here. The, the most 
upvoted answer uh, gives a sort of bullet list of several of the problems. Some of them are are more or less canonical uh, within the legend of Google or the legend of Go. Others might be a little bit less obvious. Probably the first one that probably jumps to anyone's mind is fast compile times. You know, as legend has it, they were waiting for C++ to compile when they started discussing Go. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. the very first stages. But beyond that, easier to understand code for new developers, stricter style, which I think is closely related to easy to understand. Wanted to make it easier to write concurrent code. If you've ever written concurrent code in C++ or, or C or, or any other older languages, it, it can be pretty tricky. You get a lot of security potential problems or, you know, data races and so on. Uh, so yeah. Go doesn't make that impossible, but it makes it easier to do it do it correctly. And then long-term language changes are minimal. So, you know, the, the, the Go one promise, the idea that Go will virtually always be backward compatible. So if you have code that was written 10 years ago, you can still compile it and run it today. And, um, you know, with the recent backward and forward compatibility blog post. So super cool to see the Go one promise, you know, that they thought about 2009. I think maybe the first email was 2007, still hold up uh, today. It means yeah. really smart people made the promise. And, you know, you mentioned all code looks the same. It's it's better for, you know, easier to understand. I agree, but it's also important that it's easier to understand for machines, not just right. for new developers. It's a lot easier to write tooling and linting and stuff that, that you know, the developers want and to write automations when there's no two ways to do one thing. You know, calling back to the zero proposal would be every place where you look for nil now, now you also have to look for zero. So they don't want that. And, in the same way, you know, making sure that everything is formatted exactly the same way and, and there's no two ways to do things and the language is very easily parsable, it doesn't have macros, doesn't have anything like that, it makes it very simple, which some people look at and say, oh, it's not good that it's simple because you can't do complex stuff, but it's really good that it's simple because you can't do compli- complex stuff. That means that if you have hard problems, you have to solve them with simple solutions. You can't solve them with complex solutions. I think that's a really good uh, move on their part. But, you know, it would be interesting to get a Googler as an interviewee. Let's see if we can uh, make that happen. If you're a Googler and you listen to our podcast, jump on the show. Talk to us. Well, Joe is an ex-Googler, but uh, we just talked about Jason. So (laughs) (laughs) anyway, I think we have one last story to cover. Yeah. So this, I'm so happy we were finally covering this. This has been in our backlog for two months now. So it's not super new news, uh, but it's a really, 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 really good blog post. It's called the Deep Look into Golang Profile Guided Optimization, PGO, which, as you probably know, is one of my favorite new features of the language. Um, and the reason I really like this uh, blog post is because really goes down to the bits and bytes. Um, the thing it does it just gives you the commands that, you know, the sort of behind the scenes, how the sausage get made, uh, like plumbing commands, get to the code real quick and teaches you what PGO does. Uh, so I didn't know, for example, if you want to see what the compiler is doing to like understand which optimization it's, it's running, you can run minus GC flags minus M when running go build. And you see all the compiler optimizations. It will tell you, I'm inlining this call. I'm inlining that call. I'm, I'm, argument does not escape. I'm escaping it to the heap. Like a ton of really, really cool stuff. And you can just compare the output uh, with or without PGO. And also, after you compile both binaries, this is another thing I learned from this blog post that I wasn't aware of. You, can, you have a thing called objdump in the Go tool chain. It's called Go tool objdump. And it just sort of gives you, you know, the binary representation of objects before you, in this blog post, they use it to compare uh, before and after uh, PGO. It sort of gets into assembly. So if you're not a super low level developer, this might look a little intimidating. But this blog post goes through a really, really good example of like setting up the a simple API server with the like JSON serve and comparing the results before and after uh, PGO and see how the compiler does it and some you know some recommendations a really really good blog post it's been in our backlog for two months so i implore you to read it because it it stayed alive in our backlog for two months which means it speaks volumes to how well i think it's written shout out to yaha sayad arbabi maybe for this blog post it's only the the that one on the blog so i really hope uh, to see more from you because this was a really really good one uh, I enjoyed it a lot. Reminds me of uh, the conversation we had with uh, Peter Seaback a few episodes ago. I think it was episode 31. Uh, we talked about Siebes. performance. Seebs, yeah. Yeah. 
and uh, you know he 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 kind of opened my eyes to some of what PGO does. So if you're if you're interested in that topic and missed that episode, go back and listen to episode 31. I had a great interview about that. So we're gonna have a link to this uh, blog post in the show notes uh, and go read it. And I really love seeing you know new blogs with just one post, all the potential. So go show <laughs> that that blogger some love, so we 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 get more content like that because it's really good content. So that wraps it up for the news for this week. Uh, stick around, though. After the ad break, we have an interesting interview, a funny interview with Timothy Stiles, where we talk about using Go to hack DNA and things like that. Yeah, it, it, it's definitely a field that uh, most people uh, listening are not aware of. Uh, and uh, Timothy is really doing some groundbreaking work there. Um, funnily enough, mostly parsing JSON. So yes, <laughs> JSON. So it's all it's all coming back to that in the end. Uh, so stick around for the interview. So before we jump into the ad break, um, many people reached out and 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 thanks a lot for uh, anyone who was wondering if I'm doing okay. I'm fine. My immediate family have not been harmed. Uh, some friends have. Some friends have been uh, kidnapped and killed. Uh, this is not an easy situation. But this is not a political show. You're not here to listen to it. If you want to get informed and learn more, you can support and do whatever. Uh, you can find a ton of resources where to do it online uh, or if you're in Israel in person. Uh, if you're in Israel, you know. I just wanted to say uh, thank you for all the people who were worried. And, and you know, some people offered, you know, if I need a co-host to replace because things are, are seriously crazy right now. I just really appreciate all the support. Thanks, everyone. And we decided to run the show just to keep uh, some normalcy. Uh, it's also good for me to have something to do, uh, you know, here and there. And, you know, we, we won't get into the politics. We won't get into the situation. Uh, I'm fine. My immediate family is fine. And we're just trying to get through this uh, situation. Thanks a lot, everybody, for the support and for uh, listening. Uh, and let's get to our ad break and some uh, interesting updates. And after that, we have a really interesting interview. This episode is sponsored by Koyab.com. Koyab is a developer-friendly serverless platform to deploy apps globally, no op servers or infrastructure management. Uh, and dear friends of the show, they've been sponsoring us for a while now. You can run web apps, APIs, event-driven serverless functions, background workers, and even cron jobs. I've been using Koyab. It's great. It works. And, you know, I got to the paid tier, finally. Uh, so I'm finally paying them back a little bit. Uh, but they've made me a lot more money than I pay them. So that might say more about my business sense than their servers. <laughs> uh, but it does work. Uh, they have an interesting update from uh, the beginning of this month. They just, they, they can't stop releasing features. But they have two uh, really interesting highlights. One of them is managed Postgres. Uh, so they started onboarding users to their new managed Postgres offering, which makes a lot of sense, right? You have a backend service or a web server or whatever, and you want state. So now they offer Postgres. If you had to pick uh, the next database that they uh, onboard, maybe we can affect their backlog a little bit. Which one do you like most? Me? Uh, I want CouchDB. I was so... I would. You're so... <laughs> Predictable. Because I maintain the CouchDB SDK for Go, so I have to pick that one. <laughs> I would just pick a super esoteric old one just to... Like CouchDB? People's <laughs> Perhaps, but you know, uh, let's do a data log or something, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, we have Postgres, which is the actually useful one. And if you want it, uh, you know, let them know in the comments of their change log and they'll reach out to onboard you. And the second thing is that they have a new instance type called free. What? Um, yep. This new edition allows you to run a service for free. It's right now only in Frankfurt. It's close to me. That's cool. Yeah. If you, like, if you want to create more services, you'll need to use other instances types, which makes a lot of sense. But that's just, I think it really uh, speaks to how uh, Koyab is uh, user-friendly. Uh, and if you want to start using Koyab, use the link in the description. Thanks a lot, Koyab, for sponsoring this show. So what uh, updates do you have for us about the show? So I have a couple of exciting updates. Uh, the first one is September was a record-breaking month for the show. We had Ooh. more downloads than ever before. 
We had almost 5,000 downloads in the month of September. Previous record was about 4,300 two months before. We're generally on an upward trend, so keep sharing the show with your friends and your colleagues and your pets and anybody who has ears uh, because uh, it's great. Thanks a lot for listening and sharing, everyone. Uh, It's what uh, keeps us going. So we we started this uh, show uh, mostly to, you know, educate ourselves about the news, but we've been really, really happy with the community that's uh, sprung up. It's a good chance to mention that if you want to uh, join the community, not just listen, you can go to go for Slack. We have a channel there, cup-o-go. Then you can find all the links and you know ways to reach us at uh, cupago.dev. You can email us at news at cupago.dev. So you know, keep us on an upward trend. Share it and come join the, the conversation. Speaking of upward trends and ways to listen, do you know about the newest way to listen to the show, Shai? Uh, I guess there's some plugin to links, so I can listen it from <laughs> my terminal when browsing Cup of Go. Uh, or with curl, you know, just pipe pipe curl command to to, to yeah. VLC. Uh, no, the new way to listen is on YouTube. Oh my god! Yeah, uh, so I, I don't know if we talked about it on the show, but Google Podcasts is being retired sometime at the end of the year, I think, or next year. Yeah, move to a farm upstate next to Google Plus and Google Hangouts. Exactly, <laughs> and they're being replaced with uh, YouTube Music. And YouTube recently started allowing uh, publishing of podcasts uh, from Europe. It's been available in the U.S. for a while, not in the U.S. As of yesterday evening. All of our episodes are available on YouTube. We have zero subscribers so far. So if you like to listen to your podcast on YouTube, uh, go subscribe. YouTube.com slash at go. No kebab case there. No spaces. Just go. It's really audio only. I mean, there's a still image there of the cute Brewster. Uh, but otherwise, it's not really video content. But you can listen to us on YouTube from now on. So check that out if that's something you like. Cool. If you're paying for like YouTube Premium, YouTube Plus, YouTube Red, I don't know how that one's called. It should be really comfortable. You know, they I heard they have a really good experience for, you know, listening a while on the road and whatever. I still, if you do listen to us from a terminal piping, you know, direct binary content into one of your network interfaces and hooking up a cable and a decoder, that's cooler. Use that. But if you don't use that and you want to check us out on YouTube and subscribe, then you can do that. Uh, now I'm officially like a internet influencer. Like and subscribe, yeah. please. <laughs> don't forget the bell or whatever. Ding. Yeah. Stick around for oh. our DNA interview. It's a fun one. Yeah, we had a really fun conversation with uh, Tim. Check that out. And thanks a lot for listening, everyone. Until later. Bye. Hey, Shai. You know yeah, how, man. as engineers, we're always reviewing each other's code, and we're talking about code smells. And I, you know, I think we're pretty good at removing code smells, right? I'm not even willing. I'll play along, but yeah, this is <laughs> even for me. It's a stretch. I also hate code smells. Yeah, I've been coding so hard lately that my shirts are starting to smell. How can we get rid of that smell? So I heard, you know, we're programming in Go. So I heard about enzymes and laundry. If only we can connect these two issues together, but I don't know who to talk to. Hey, Timothy, do you know anything about this? <laughs> yeah, sure. Do. Okay. My, my, you can call me, just call me Tim. That's the easiest one. But yeah, no, the, um, so I guess we're introducing me. Hi, all couple Go fans out there. My name is Tim. <laughs> and, uh, before we started, I told these two about a lovely biologically engineered concept where the, the true promise of synthetic biology is that everything should grow on trees. Just why not? Mm-hmm. And I mentioned to these two that, um, you know, sometimes we work with enzyme sequences. And Shai just said, all I know is that's in the laundry detergent. I was like, that's perfect. Because a couple of years ago, I came up with the idea of, you know, enzymes are sort of like nanobots that your cells produce or cells in general produce. And I was thinking, you know, why don't we just grow these Tide Pods on trees? Why don't we just have berries? And I ran around this conference where all my friends were. And eventually I talked to one friend. She was like, Tim, you know, that's the thing already, right? I just kind of <laughs> like shocked. Like, what do you mean there's Tide Pod trees already? It's ridiculous. And it turns out there's entire genuses of trees that produce low-grade detergents in their berries. The one that I'm familiar with is um, soapberry trees in Hawaii. And crunchy hippies have been putting it in their laundry for decades. And wow. so I was thinking, you know, we maybe we should engineer these soap berries to have those enzymes. Because those enzymes, if you've noticed, it's a lot harder to get permanent stains and clothes nowadays. And that's because we've engineered like five to seven enzymes that are really good at breaking down blood stains, grass stains, grease stains, you know, all the common stains you'd run into. But somehow my kid still manages. So the science is still <laughs> talented. 
Uh, sorry, I don't have enough children near me to know. So, like, also not yeah. enough grass either. I live in San Francisco. There's, you know, there's some parks here and there, but not all right. So, I, I can't believe we're doing this in a cup of go interview. But first of all, <laughs> this show is is non medical advice. Oh, uh, thank God! Eat, yeah, don't, don't eat the Tide no, Pods. No, no, no medical advice here. Goodness, people. No, you're right. People ask me medical advice. I'm like, guys, I'm not a doctor. Like, I come up yeah. with stupid theories for my own health too. Um. <laughs> And before we dive into, you know, why are we talking about enzymes on a, on a programming show? Uh, we have to shout out, uh, Michai Tudor. He's a past interviewee. If you remember, he talked about Benthos, uh, together with Ash and he's the, the matchmaker. Before we went on our summer vacation, we asked for interesting uh, people to talk to. And, uh, Michai was gracious enough to mention you, Tim. Uh, and that's why we we're all here to talk about Polly which is a Go package for engineering organisms. Now, most of our listeners, you know, you can see it from our Slack conversations, our Slack channel, and the stuff we usually talk about. You know, they're into maybe backend development. Some weird ones like Andrew are into desktop app development. That's already out there. Like people will uh, be, really? Desktop applications in Go? Uh, The really, really crazy ones are, you know, into WebAssembly. Uh, and here you come out of left field, engineering organisms. So for, I guess, most of us who don't even know what that means, what does that mean? That means engineering mostly cells, not, you know, whole organisms. Some people do whole organisms, right? But engineering cells to produce a certain chemical reagent. So imagine the same breweries that you have your beer brewed in Milwaukee also are just contract breweries and some companies will engineer yeast to produce stuff like vanilla flavor in large quantities and they'll brew it up in this vat uh just the same way you brew beer and instead of selling the beer they extract the vanilla and sell it and that's sort of like the core principle here is that the idea is that you're engineering cells to produce some valuable chemical that you can then sell uh but it also has applications in medicine uh if you, you know you can program a human cells to produce a medicine internally that's a pretty good pretty good therapy so how do you do this with go like i this sounds like i need a microscope and like tweezers and i don't know i don't know what kind of equipment you use to this or droplets and whatever how do you do this with go how is go contributing to this so go so this is i can tell you the story behind this so i originally got into the field and there wasn't like a good not even central but a good framework for engineering dna and that's what poly does the best what poly does is it offers a set of parsers for these old legacy data formats that literally i'm having a someone write a parser right now for it and like like this is awful I'm like yeah so were all the other ones huge terrible not even xml not even asn1 which most viewers probably no listeners probably never heard of it's like these data formats that were specified by the u.s government in 1978 in the deserts of new mexico and we don't know who to blame for it. It's all white space based. It's awful. So we start with the parsers, right? Mm, okay. The format is GenBank, right? GenBank, one of them, one of yeah. the many. Uh, there's a there's the GenBank's my uh, personal pet peeve. That's the one where like I've been trying to find people who made it forever just so I could. I just want to talk. I just I just want to know <laughs> what was happening when they did this. Just want to talk because uh, I think it takes longer for me to write a parser than it d- did for them to make the spec for this thing. Um, <laughs> And so what Go provides is when I was designing this initial library, which there aren't many libraries for designing DNA, there's very, very few. When I was designing this library, I had a choice between what most scientists already use, Python and R, and then Go and Rust. And I know plenty of languages, and that was sort of the, you know, do I go down the, the path of least resistance where all the developers in science use Python, or do I pick something that uh, compiles to a binary and goes fast? Um, and I thought at the time I was going to have a command line utility because that's just sort of how scientists expose their programming to other people's command line utilities, almost always. Uh, so originally, PolyShip is command line utility, utility, like just turning GenBank in the JSON. And I tried Rust and I tried Go, and Rust was just, the stream manipulation in Rust is kind of unique. I forget how they do it. But it was enough of a problem. I couldn't see Python devs making it to that point, but I could see them going to go and just mm. go one out on everything else. Uh, you know, it was just a mature system at that point compared to Rust. And so that's usually been a sticking point of a lot of scientists to say, why go? It's like, well, you know the, how you have to set up virtual environments and Docker stuff like out the back for every science project you do. I don't. I've held entire hackathons where like I haven't had to help a single person install, so, you know, install mm-hmm. for dev stuff. The, de- yeah. the, Basic defaults for Go are really beautiful if you don't have an opinion yet. Like example tests are great. That is a 
built-in mm-hmm. feature that n- most languages don't have that. Uh, I don't know if Rust does. I don't, I'm pretty sure Python does it. There's third-party packages for it, but like, that's what kind of got me excited about Go is there was enough opinions there that like, I was still learning and it just kind of, I was like, we should really just write these tests as examples. And I was like, someone's like, you know, we can just do that. Right. And it just, <laughs> it was great. It's like, then sort of like, it sounds like you're coming up with all the good ideas that are no, 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 like no, 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 trees no, no. that have Tide Pods and no, example no, testing. No, no, Go. no, the good ideas. Fantastical yeah, ideas. That fantastical ideas that, oh, someone's already figured out, man. I'm not that smart. Like, <laughs> like I, I kind of like, I, stared at it for a second was like oh that does make sense okay and i think go does that really well the standard library and the standard tools that just come with go are great they make it really easy to pick up very easy to learn i've had people learn go in like a day or two and actually get you know contributing with stuff like almost immediately and sure there's a little there's some tricky parts that you know people can get stuck on generics and interfaces would have been introduced mm-hmm. like what last two years um, or generics have anyways. And, you know, there's some things with Go routines that can be a little sticky. Like we've had people write stuff with Go routines that's like actually slower than just doing single threaded stuff. <laughs> but overall, as a default programming language for science, it's pretty good, uh, especially since we're not messing with so much with matrix multiplication, which is usually what a lot of scientific applications are doing. So they're essentially, you know, deep learning, matrix, machine learning, it's just a lot of matrix multiplication. With bioinformatics, it's usually just string manipulation. Every programming language just string manipulation, right? Not all of them do it well. <laughs> Shout out to my days of working in Lua, where Oof. it's one based and you know all your world shifts like off by one. Uh-huh. You start programming in Lua, you miss every step on the stairwell, <laughs> like the first step every time. So again, trying to go back to super basics, what I'm imagining is I'm a company that produces something organic, right? You said not a whole organism, right? It's it's not it's not going to be easy to program a goldfish in using a JSON. Um, <laughs> Look up blowfish. That's actually a genetically engineered pet that you can buy. They've been around since like the late nineties. <laughs> I don't know. I'll, I'll look that up, but I don't know if we can put the put it in the show notes and recommend because <laughs> I don't know, maybe. But anyway, let's go run with the laundry example because I yeah. think that's at least for me easy to understand. So this company, you know, they have scientists, they're working in a lab and they're trying to iterate to find the best enzyme to clean clothes, right? It's mm-hmm. something that everybody needs. It's hygienic. It's It makes sense. We were trying to figure out ways to produce it and whatever. They figure they they crack the case. They have the best enzyme on the market. Now they can use, uh, you know, poly to just send a JSON file that includes this material over bytes. And then on the other side of the world, using poly again, they can decode it and, and you know remake it, and it's exactly the same? Close. Very close. So there's a couple of steps when you're going from the... When you found the enzyme sequence you want, imagine these are just long ticker tapes of just instructions. The ACTs and Gs, this is just coordinary instead of binary. And there's ticker tape instructions where essentially these directly translate into what are called amino acids. And these little amino acids are kind of like molecular magnets where they will fold against each other and start revealing these shapes and configurations that do special things like break down blood stains in our case or like grass stains in our case. Um, And so what Polly does better than anyone else uh, or anything else is we do two things, codon optimization and DNA synthesis optimization. Those are the two things that are relatively unique to our package, um, but it's something that everyone needs to do. Uh, and so codon optimization is it turns out that the ribosome, which turns uh, these DNA sequences into proteins, these nanobots, they're like compilers. And it turns out that different kinds of organisms have different kinds of compilers and they read the language differently. So you, if you want to take a gene from, say, like a human and put it in the corn for some odd reason, I don't know why you would, but say you want to put a human gene in the corn, you have to re- code it so that it's optimized for corn because otherwise it may come out misfolded and weird and not do what you want so these these sequences like you can make minute changes to it without changing the end result in analog and that's really helpful for a lot of reasons but the one that we focus on is dna synthesis optimization the chemistry that we use to print genes de novo literally think of it as like hp like hp uh printers are like actually in this field they print DNA on silicon chips or paper layer by layer of inkjets uh, and bind them like that. It's a statistical process. 
Uh, and there's a lot of potential errors there. So for example, if you have a lot of repeat, uh, base pairs, A, 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 T, 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 it's really hard to check. Like, you know, they sequence this stuff for quality control afterwards. It's really hard to do repeat nucleotides. So like, that's just one thing's function filters for. The other is, um, enzyme cut sites. There are enzymes that cut DNA at certain locations. We know where they are, but there's a ton of enzymes. There's like 30,000 enzymes we use commercially. I actually have to go look that up, but there's quite a few and. You want to make sure that whatever you're doing downstream for your engineered for, from your engineered DNA doesn't get mucked up by the enzymes you're using for some special procedure. Damn. And you know the the way you would introduce poly into an already existing like organization that's already working and whatever. What are they doing now like without this these parsers without that I want to try and be gentle. Um <laughs> they're getting lucky. Um a lot of <laughs> They're writing internally, so there's a couple of things. Um, a lot of these companies have to write this stuff internally anyways. Uh, that was the one thing I noticed, that if the companies are really doing this, uh, they're writing it all internally, and they're spending millions of dollars of dev time just doing it internally. It's like if every company made their own web framework, closed-sourced internally. What, they don't? <laughs> Maybe they do, right? But that's pretty <laughs> much what biotech does, is they make their own framework internally, uh, and then the person who made it leaves the company, and it just starts to rot really fast um, and it gives this huge burden of technical debt because it also turns out that a lot of software engineers don't understand biology so Polly's answer to this is that we've made this really stable code base with a lot of unit test coverage a lot of examples in there to make sure that so if i look at it 10 years from now i should be able to at least grok what was done uh, and that's sort of been like the benchmark so far is like people wondering like hey this works why are we accepting it's like i don't understand it someone someone needs to fix this 10 years from now <laughs> Building, building for the future. And by the way, I'm thinking about the other way around, like taking a gene out of corn and putting it into, into a person just to create another like awesome band. But that's just because I like corn. Yeah. So, I mean, there are... Wait, I didn't mean it seriously. You're, you're oh, not going to tell me that people are taking g- vegetable genes into themselves, right? Uh, no, there's uh, DNA from weird places does weird things. So like one of the most frequently used genes in science is called GFB, green fluorescent protein. That comes from jellyfish. Uh, that's why a lot of biotech companies' logos are jellyfish. Um, and so there's green fluorescent proteins. You can use them to tag certain other like biological markers that you want to uh, see like visually and just shine a light on it and it will you know, give you back like a green light. Um, and then if you think about so really, so polymerase, like tag polymerase is what copies DNA, right? And that's what Polly is named after. Uh, the polymerase we use is actually found in a thermophile microbe living, I think, in like, you know, the sulfur, you know, the sulfuric, uh, pools in like Wyoming. And we found it in there because it's, it's thermostable beyond a certain temperature, which we need. Uh, and so a lot of the biotechnology breakthroughs that we have are just by finding weird organisms that we know exist, like in certain conditions and finding some protein in them that we need. That you know meets the condition of it's thermostable, or it can be in like high salt concentrations. This doesn't sound that different from the game my my two year old plays, where he's he takes the head of a giraffe and puts it on a, a donkey because the donkey can't reach the trees. Like just there's a trait from this animal that would fit on this other animal. Let's just put them together and, and make a better animal. I mean, a little bit, right? I mean, I think it's a little. There's a little bit more of like a. Yeah, there's a lot more ethics to it, right? Yeah, right. I'm not. I'm not trying to to make it as as simple or silly, but yeah. you know, conceptually, it sounds like this thing survives in hot water. Let's use that trait, and it glows. Let's use that trait, and whatever, whatever. Yeah, that's exactly it, and that's something that we've been doing for a while. Biotechnology has been mostly borrowing from nature until very, very recently. We've developed some machine learning models for uh, protein design that mm. sort of. You know, they're de novo, right? They're new, but like they're still based on old stuff. Uh, and so we're now reaching this like frontier of protein engineering or nanobot engineering using biology that can do some really interesting stuff. But historically, we've been almost entirely reliant on just genes we've seen before. And to give you an idea of like probably the most important medical application of this technology, uh, insulin production. Most insulin is produced in yeast in these giant vats in Milwaukee, like I mentioned. So that's sort of the, and that was like before 1978, I think is when this started happening. Before then, it was pig insulin. It just came from pigs. It was much harder to produce and much more expensive. 
Yeah. And even the ethical angle, like, I don't know if uh, vegan insulin is a thing. Oh, it's, our, it's been vegan for a while. Yeah, <laughs> that's a lot better. I, I think mm-hmm. everybody would agree that's a lot better. Even if you're not into the, like the ethical worries of uh, consumption of uh, pigs it's better <laughs> for climate change. It should be cheaper. I don't know what's going on in America that it's only getting more expensive. But in every, every other place in the world, it's cheaper and cheaper. California is getting cheaper now. That's really good news. Yeah, I should go double check. Uh, I know there's actually a group here in the Bay Area called Open Insulin that's been working on this for a while. But recently, the state government of California has jumped in on the game of making insulin cheaper, too. So that's been nice to see. (laughs) We've been seeing a few OpenX projects recently. OpenAI has been doing well. OpenTF we recently uh, uh, interviewed. (laughs) But if I would root for anyone, it's Open Insulin. Yeah, Open Insulin, they're they're a great group. I don't know if Anthony is a go dev, but he's a computer scientist. You could maybe he could show up. Even if he writes Lua, he's okay in my book. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's one thing talking about open. Uh, there's one thing worth mentioning about Poly. This sounds like a soup, you know, from an outside perspective, really a strong project that I expect like a biotech company is behind and they're funding and they're selling it and whatever. But that's not the case. Mm. So open source software, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it turns out when you do something really cool on the internet and tell people about it, more people show up and start doing it with you. And I've found that even internally at some of these biotech companies we've, I've talked to, like Poly's very, very strong. They, you know, a lot of companies have actually looked at Poly to, if not use, they've literally used it for a reference implementation for something they need. And that's like a, that's like a common thing. Um, but it really sort of came out of in the, during the pandemic, I have a good friend who was at a genetic engineering lab at Stanford and was moving down to his parents' place in Los Angeles because of the pandemic. And he just didn't want to be alone in the Bay Area anymore. And he called me on the drive and he told me that he couldn't convert gen bank to JSON and back using Python. And I was just kind of like, what? This is the, ba- <laughs> this is the baseline, right? This is like what you need to get stuff done. And so he asked me if I could write a parser for it and I took a crack at it. And it worked. And I was like, yeah, don't use this in production, but like it works. And so he used it in production uh, <laughs> almost immediately. And they did really well. And we started building stuff together. And people sort of like, you know, in the first like half a year, it was only like two or three or five. Like, I think it was like five people were like worked on like certain parts of it. It was mostly just me and Fiona. And then it sort of kind of took off from there. And it turns out that biotech companies have this problem where they don't know how to hire and manage software engineers. I think this is the biggest problem for software engineers in the field is that almost every company that has the word tech in it is becoming a tech company, biotech included. Uh, and they need to know how to write software. But what ends up happening at these companies is that the founding team usually doesn't have a very technical per- Usually they're all scientists, maybe a business person, right? But there's no software engineers on the founding team. The CTO is often a scientist who does science things. And so, you know, they don't know even know anything about web dev. If you ask them like, hey, what's a post request? They probably don't know. And so they're tasked with hiring like the first programmers and then the next programmers and the next ones. And what you'll find is they don't know how to attract talent and they don't know how to manage talent. This is just like across the board in the whole field. It's like this. Like biotech salaries are notably lower, especially for software engineers. And it's it's changing now. A lot of companies have now changed their their model, they're now realizing that they should invest in this. But for a while, it was like, it was, it was hard. I have a friend who's a, a mathematician and he's uh, just getting into software. And, you know, I, I brought him into software, so I tried to do it the right way. We picked an open source project, very easy, in Python, uh, where I had, I know the maintainers, their friends, it's uh, Keep, which we mentioned on the show, by the way, Jonathan. And, you know, I taught him like, okay, this is how you install Git. This is how you write a unit test, and this is how you use poetry, and this is how you open PyCharm, and this is how you run a, a program. And then let's get into Python, right? How to write this, like loops and whatever. And he went into like a super deep research project, deep learning, whatever, and he's starting to teach them. He's like, uh, oh, this is version control. Have you heard of it? No, they're using email to <laughs> pass files, pass back and forth. How do you write to They're opening Notepad on Windows to yeah, edit yeah, the files. No. Like there are some basic uh, software engineering stuff that these people, I guess, it's not there for the installee fair that they don't know because they're scientists and their their focus is totally different. That's and so the phrase I've been calling I've been calling this Tim's inverse law of software quality. More important the thing, the worse the code. 
<laughs> like rocket ship code, probably not that great. Instagram code, I bet you it's got some quality control behind it. And, it, <laughs> and like, there's, there's a lot of reasons it's like that, but you're right. Scientists aren't, aren't software engineers and they haven't had this expectation. And something I tell a lot of scientists, I said, there's been a new computational focus, you know, the last decade, right? I've been telling a lot of them, Hey, look, your advisor for your PhD program is not going to teach you about unit tests. They're not going to teach you about Git or the command line or how to like, you know, manage dev environments. You need to learn that. Your advisor may even know you need to learn that, but doesn't know how to teach you that. And there've been some programs, like I think Mozilla had like a program for scientists learning how to code. I think there's been like the software carpentry and data carpentry groups. I don't know if you've ever heard of them, um, but they worked a lot with getting scientists sort of up to speed with basic dev practices. Because you're right, most of the time they're doing math or like running a machine and getting results with, like from some machine. They're not specifically focused on code, but they have to use it now. They have to even publish it. And if you look at the code that's published even in like high, highly prestigious journals, right? I've seen some gnarly Perl scripts, like just in like nature genetics, that, that it's just spaghetti. And it's published in one of the, you know, the, like, this is like a, it's like being in Rolling Stone magazine as a musician. Like this is the place to be. So the bar is low, but it's also weird. It's a weird bar to be in. Because you have to understand this biological context. I think a lot of computer scientists and software engineers come into the field kind of feeling kind of cocky because they see people using Notepad, right? Or emailing changes back and forth. And they're like, these guys don't know anything. Well, no, they do. They really understand the science. It's just the software stuff. You need to be able to not only do it, but you need to be able to explain to these groups why it's important, how it's going to save them costs, how it's going to save them time. And how it's going to make their organization just work better. And I've had, like, I've had interviews where, like, I interviewed with a company. I was like, the, at this point, code optimization and DNA synthesis optimization were like done. We had finished these features and there's only like three or four people like on their resume publicly that are like, I wrote this. There's a GitHub repo for this, right? So this company reaches out to me. They're like, Hey, do you, uh, do you want to interview for this position? You look like a really great fit. And the position was exactly just DNA synthesis optimization. Like, great. I can do that. Let's talk. And. I get 30 minutes through the call and I realize that the job she's talking about is not for DNA synthesis optimization. She's asking like, hey, can you help us set up GitHub? And uh, we need stuff like in the cloud. I was like, they were describing their quality control process. Essentially, instead of like having, you know, all these computers at least network together and like passing data between each other on a local area network, they were taking USB sticks from different machines, like from the sequencer mm. to a Windows machine to a Mac and doing that, I was like listening to this. I was like, okay. So I asked her eventually, I was like, is this this position? She goes, oh, no, no, no. We're not doing that position anymore. This is for the, uh, I think she was like, this is for the guy working underneath the guy that developed this. And I was like, I can't, I can't do this. Like she was asking me to like, set, she was asking me to help set up GitHub for the entire organization. I was like, you don't have GitHub yet. I was like, I can't, I can't do like, there has to be at least an appreciation in the org for these sort of things. Like, you know, they're like, yeah. There has to be some knowledge that something's missing because a lot of these companies, they don't know until their investors tell them in some cases. Mm -hmm. Like their investors would be like, whoa, 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 hold up, you're changing the world and you're emailing changes back and forth in a thread for your code. Wait a minute, I've invested in at least one tech company. I know what the difference is, guys, don't do that. <laughs> um, and like, it's very, it's very, very easy to be cocky, but the humbling thing here is you have to realize that they're they're familiar with so much like domain specific information. And it's, you know, I, I picked it up over time, but I feel like a lot of people sort of miss things. Even like, even biologists can, some like varying levels of degrees, like miss things. Um, like a good friend of mine learned that you have to optimize for codons. She didn't realize there was different codon, like, you know, tables or different codon translations between DNA and between, uh, sorry, between RNA and proteins. Like she just learned that. I think it's easy for software engineers to, because software engineering, at least nowadays, is pretty easy, but it is very empowering. Like after a year in programming, you can do really cool stuff and it pays really well. I think many people get a false uh, sense of just their capabilities and how easy everything is. And, you know, if they understand this one complicated thing, like web development or, you know, crypto or whatever, uh, everything else is easier by comparison, uh, which is just not. And I've seen this fallacy a few times. Scientists have the same problem, too. I'm really good <laughs> at science. Oh, I must be good at code. Same. Yeah. It's the same problem. For as soon as you're really good at one thing and you're like, wow, this is easy. You're like, I bet everything is easy. And then you start realizing, oh, wait, hold on. This doesn't translate at all. Yeah.
So just to get back to the open source side of things. So it, this is open source, but obviously a lot of companies can use it. You're working on this project full time now, right? How does that work? So Poly has been supported by various different contracts, full-time gigs. Uh, I've been doing it full-time since 2021, I believe. I'm trying to remember. And right now, I'm actually, we were accepted to GitHub's first open source accelerator. I don't know if Mihai actually told you about that. No. Yeah, GitHub gave us like 20K to be part of their first accelerator, no equity taken. It's a really great program, really nice. Um, and now we're raising money for a startup. Oh my where, God. I know it's, it's weird because we've, we're, we're starting to hit that limit of like, I've been told you need to talk to a hundred investors. I think we've talked to like 30 and now we're starting to get like, we're starting to know the game now. There's a real game with investors, but we're starting to get to that point. And it's, it's sort of challenging. It's because like good investors will know what you do and not good investors will not know what you do. <laughs> it's kind of common. So we we finally got like a new advisor. He's He was the CTO of a company you've definitely heard of, but it's so new. I don't want to press embargo, annoy my CEO, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. But we finally got an advisor that really gets it, who understands that we're building essentially dev tools for people trying to move from software to biotech software. And our first product is really just enabling people to store and query data easily. There's all these little quirky things that you wouldn't expect from biological data that make it hard to search and store that we're trying to abstract to make it easy for the end developer not to have to think about. They can just say, I want something like this, and we give them something like that. That's really cool. All right, so... We talked about what poly is, and yeah. I don't know how many people understood it. I, I feel like I have a ton more to learn. And we talked about the Go angle, why using yeah. Go for it, which is super cool. And we even talked about the like business aspect of it, right? How did you started with open source and where is it going right now? If people want to learn more about poly or just talk to you and, you know, get involved because this sounds super interesting or maybe they even need it. You know, maybe we do have biotech listeners, actually. You'd be surprised. You probably have a couple. So where can people reach you and where can people support the project? So I would say go to uh, projects, uh, GitHub link, which I'm assuming is going to be in the notes for the show, um, and just sort of read about the project. Join the Discord. We have a Discord that's, you know, at least like almost 300 people. Uh, and uh, Mihai Todor is actually on there. He's he, like, that's where he told me like, hey, do you want to do this? So Mihai is there and there's a bunch of really interesting people just sort of in chat and we're all sort of working together on similar things. And I think that's the best place to start is looking at the repo and just joining the Discord. It may just be that you're lurking and that's totally fine. Or maybe you just jump in and start really working on it. Like some people show up with like a huge gung-ho attitude and then like, you know, they're like, oh wait, I don't have time. And some people like, like, I don't want to get too in. And then they get too into it. <laughs> I like both. They're both just peachy to me. As long as people are there having fun, that's what I want with the Discord group. So I'm wondering which approach Jonathan took and which approach I took. Which one of us was the gung-ho, let's do this, and which one was, ah, oh, maybe I don't want to get into it in the podcast for this podcast. Because I feel like wow. I went in with a whole bunch of energy and like set up the Trello thing and whatever, and then Jonathan was more careful about it. What if we found a good balance, right? <laughs> I think you'll find a few in each project. And if yeah. people want to talk to you directly, where can they find you other than the Discord? Usually I tell people to pull my Git logs from the project and use that email. That's how I keep the recruiters out of my email. They're they're pretty rough. They've been asking me to do crypto work. I'm like, guys, did you even look at my GitHub? But uh, Tim at styles.io is my personal email. Um, I don't know if that should be shared on the show or not, but that's a, that's a good place to reach me. I typically see things there. There's no bots scanning the audio for my email. In this. <laughs> no, there is not. Yeah, okay, um, fine, yeah. We're not famous enough for you, you know. <laughs> I think it's just the right balance. Uh, you know, the the show Slack group right now is also around 200 people. So it's still a, a small village. It's not a big city yet. I like the small village. I mean, it feels a little weird because sometimes, like, you know, there'll be certain points where there's, like, a real lull in conversation. Like, it'll be a couple of weeks. And then, like, all of a sudden, it's just spring forth of just text. Just lots and lots of messages. And I'm just super thankful when someone, like, shows up to the community. It's like, oh, great, there's a wall of text. Good. They they think we're on this all the time. <laughs> but I'm pretty happy with our Discord. But you can reach out to me in my email. Uh, Discord's fine. If you live in the Bay Area, I probably should I'll probably be doing some meetups soon. Um, not sure when, but uh, I live next to uh, one of the Bay Area's local hackerspaces. Not next to, but like three blocks away. And uh, it's just a really convenient venue. So I'll probably be working out of there a little bit. I'm actually surprised at how many contributors end up being in the Bay Area. I think like a fifth of them are in the Bay mm -hmm. Area just by chance. 
So I want to throw them when we raise some money. I'd like to throw them <laughs> at least a nice dinner. <laughs> some swag, some swag. I think the the icon from uh, one uh, group that has a really cool icon to another. Your project icon is one of the coolest gophers climbing oh. on the DNA ladder. That's that's really 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 cool. That was done by a UC Berkeley student actually. That was a uh, that was like his. He's like, how can I help with the project? He's like, we need a gopher that does something with DNA. He's like, yeah, I got this. <laughs> Ten times UC Berkeley student fully understood the assignment. <laughs> UC Berkeley, yeah. UC Berkeley has all these super motivated kids. And sometimes I'm just like, you guys, I don't know if I have enough energy to keep up with this level of motivation. <laughs> <laughs> but they get it done they're really great well we've been talking for a while i feel like i could sit and talk for a long time i have i have so much to learn about this just out of curiosity because it's a field that i'm not familiar with but to respect our listeners time we need to wrap up a little bit we always like to ask our guests two questions uh, i i think you've been prompted on this so it's not a complete shock but i'm going to throw a twist in at the end given the topic for today but let's start Somebody is holding a gun to your head and says, Tim, you have to take a feature out of Go. What would you remove? I don't like interfaces that much. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm not a big fan of them. Uh, it's nothing personal. Just like everything around generics is a little, little iffy for me. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, but I don't have like extremely strong opinions. Like it's just sort of like I've definitely had, I've defined one type that had like a, what was it? Sometimes the, the data types you're working with in biology are really tricky and just more more options when it comes to doing generics be really helpful. That's the adding mm-hmm. part too. Um, it's like okay. I, could, I could either not have generics or have a little bit more support for generics. But the way it okay. is right now, it's just sort of, it's a nice rabbit hole. One of my contributors is trying to redo everything with interfaces and generics for all the different data types we have and sort of mm-hmm. have like one unified sequence type. And it's been hard is the way of putting it yeah okay that's an interesting take i think actually the take is what i would take out of go is the next two years until we figure out all the (laughs) generics related to proposal and it's tip-top shape and i mean like i'm the the go developers the go team is definitely more qualified to decide on how things are going i'm just the end user it's just my my general feeling has been like the generics part is just when generics first came out like there wasn't even that much documentation for it I think that's when I first tried using it. And like every time someone's running into a problem dev wise with Polly, it's like, are you trying to use generics? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, okay. Um, and I don't know what's going on there. It is advancing one proposal by at a time. So I want to ask a, a related sort of question given our topic for today. I don't know how much you know about gophers, the animals, but if you could add a feature to gophers, Oh, using oh, Polly, what would it usually be? I, I usually I go for uh, for um, plants. Those ones are easier. What would a gopher? So gophers are in the ground, right? They they typically well, they're not groundhogs, right? I mean, no, this is, they're, they're groundhog-ish. They're ish, groundhog-ish. Yes. Gophers, but they live in the ground. They are yeah. are they? I need I need some more details about what gophers do. I need to know about gopher society. A they bit, complain but. about rust mostly. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> Gophers are small, furry rodents that burrow tunnels through yards in North America and Central America. And they're cute. They're cute. They make a little squeaking sound. They're less cute than hedgehogs, but they're cuter than uh, moles, I would say. Cute than moles. I mean, yeah. I, I don't even, even know how you're thinking about this this long, not just yelling bioluminescence. I mean, so bioluminescence but that's like, we have to understand that my field, we, have, we play a game called GMNOS, and this is a classic GMNO one. A GMNO is just like, Hey, this is really dumb. We shouldn't make this, but what if we try? What if? It's the what <laughs> uh-huh. if game for this, right? So the latest round I played was like, if you could engineer any fruit, what would it be? And it's like, I was like, yo, I'd make peel, hand peelable watermelons. Like, you know, you got orange, peel it, watermelon, peel it. That'd be great. <laughs> awesome. So with groundhogs, like I, I just haven't held a groundhog in my hand. I don't know what the. I can't imagine you'd want to peel it, though. <laughs> Have you ever held just a ball of watermelon in your hand before? It's actually, I, I actually carved a watermelon, so it's just a ball of watermelon. Wow. Very satisfying as a hand fruit. Um, but wow. it's groundhogs. Let me actually, let me just look up groundhog and like see what it looks like physically. Cause like I'm confusing it now with prairie dogs. I mean, I could make it, 
Oh, I could just do a, a riff on Groundhog Day. Make sure you look up gophers, not not just groundhogs. I mean, if you want to compare, sorry, not gophers, fine, sorry. But, yeah. gophers, gophers, yeah. gophers. Let's see, Minnesota gophers. Here we go. Coming from burning rodents of the family. <laughs> my my trade is adding the Minnesota gopher, moving it to the Bay Area. So it can... <laughs> you could you could probably like so. Let's see. Oh, I would, just for their own sake. Help them. I'd probably find a way to help them deal with their external parasites. I don't know what external. They probably have fleas. Oh, that's cool. You can take the smell of the pill, like, you know, the collar you give dogs. If that's a biologic, you could totally do that. So, like, so, like, I would. This is actually something I was thinking about because we were trying to get rid of a mattress recently. And, like, no one takes mattresses, right? Like, it's like everyone's afraid of bed bugs. It's a terrible thing. Never had bed bugs in my life. Don't know what they're like. I'm sure they're awful, right? But no one's going to take my mattress. Very, 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 very bad. I can so, tell from unfortunate personal experience in the army. Okay, so then you know, and so our, so one of the things I was thinking about when I was dropping off my 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 old mattress at the dump was like, wouldn't it be great if we came up with a biologic coating that just deterred bed bugs from getting near beds? That would be great. Um, <laughs> you know, that would be a great product for any anyone listening out there. Um, and so. I would probably, you know, just look at pest resistance or like, you know, parasite resistance for groundhogs, just for starters. For gophers. <laughs> for gophers. For gophers. Yeah. Just bleep it every time I say groundhog, just for gophers. Um, <laughs> That's so cool. That's honestly the coolest version of this question we've ever had. You know, the rest of the response is like, oh, coroutines maybe. <laughs> you are talking about. Pest resistance for gophers. I, mean, I think like, I I think I have to change jobs now. I can't do cybersecurity anymore. I have to do biotech. No, there's also a field of biosecurity, which is kind of funky. Ooh. There's a lot of green space out there. No, seriously, like the biosecurity people, like they kind of got dumped on by COVID. I'm gonna be honest, they were not ready for that. Uh, they they've been talking about like you know like governments government level like like bioterrorism and like they got done in my bats, dude. Like, like it was, it was like, I went to a biosecurity conference like three weeks before the pandemic started. And I just kind of, it was a local one. So I just kind of walked in. I was like, y'all flew from where for this? Didn't you see the reports? You're from the UK and you're here right now. Go home, dude. Like the one biosecurity person I knew, like, I called him like later that day. I was like, why are you at the conference? He's like, why do you think I'm not at the conference, dude? <laughs> like, so yeah, there's biosecurity is a fascinating field that's still very young, but a lot of us trying to figure out like, hey, uh, what can people really do with minimal resources? And the answer is not much. It's pretty easy to tell when someone's working on something nefarious because just you need a lot of equipment that would be indicative of that. Like there's like the only example I have that's like comparable is like I once visited MIT Media Lab where they had a like a very expensive CNC machine and they said it had a GPS in it. And the reason the GPS was in there is because that machine is one of the ones you need to uh, build <laughs> nuclear reactors. So if that thing gets moved, the local FBI office gets informed that it's been moved and they show up and try and find it. Oh, my God. So, like, you know, there's special equipment you need for that kind of stuff. That's true. Let me let me let me spin that on you. GPS enabled gophers. <laughs> I mean, it would make life a lot easier to track. I mean, the, the closest I've heard about the closest I've heard of that is my friend. My friend claims that pigments, like the pigments that, you know, everyone has, like that you find in every organism, are mm -hmm. antennas. I don't know if this is true. I, I was kind of hocus pocus to me, but he's like, what if we made Wi-Fi trees? What if we made Wi-Fi gophers? Just gophers that like were Wi-Fi extenders. <laughs> there was a running joke in my, my wife went to Be'er Sheva University, which is in the desert region of Israel, the Negev. And... The Wi-Fi is really bad there. So the running joke was, yeah, the Wi-Fi camel is now on the other side of the campus. And when it, <laughs> when it comes back, uh, you know, to, to our side, it's going to be a bit faster. Can we make like a purple camel that's just making Wi-Fi happen? Like, I don't know if that would be too much energy, like metabolic energy expended. But like, that's the... Uh... I would maybe keep it out of the VC pitch deck. Oh, yeah, no, no. VC pitch deck. So the VC pitch deck, like... That, that'll have to be a bit more uh, grounded and serious. Oh, no, no. I would, the VC pitch deck is not my... Uh, pitch deck is beautiful, by the way. Any, VC, any VCs that write Go out there, the pitch deck is beautiful, and you can ask me about it. It's really good. <laughs> I didn't make it, and that's why I'm hyping it so much. It's really good. Well, Tim, this conversation has been mind-blowing. I don't even know what to say right now.
Thanks a lot for coming on the show. Now that you're on the couple of Slack as well, if people are interested in this topic, they can catch you there as well. But obviously in your email and the Discord, everything's going to be in the show notes. And I, you know, usually open source work, it's really hard to to say it. But for, for this one, I think the applications could be so good that I just want to thank you for the work you've done so far and really wish you and your partners luck with uh, getting this uh, initiative off the ground. And thanks a lot for your time, man. Yeah. This has been yeah. absolutely mind-blowing. Anytime. It's been a lot of fun. Oh, I just realized I have a meeting now, too. All right, time to... Guess we're all mailing. All right. <laughs>